0: Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your solo host today, Monica Hadley. And our guest today on Writer's Voices is Carrie Winfrey. He is a veteran American journalist who's worked in a number of media outlets throughout his career, including Time, The New York Times. WNED, and CBS Cable, among others. He was the founding editor of Memories Magazine and the former editor-in-chief of Cuisine, American Health, and Smithsonian Magazines. He's a part-time resident of Key West, and that is what we're talking about today. It is a collection of essays edited by Carrie called Key West Sketches, Writers at Mile Zero. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Carrie.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) So is this your uh, post-retirement project? It's one of two. um, uh,
1: My wife and I made a documentary about writers in Key West right after I left Smithsonian in uh, 2011. And uh, this was my pandemic project, yes.
0: Ah, my pandemic project was um, building a porch. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> yes, and and um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I didn't do the actual construction, but I, you know.
1: I didn't think you did.
0: Yeah, but I, I not that I couldn't have. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> but, but, um.
1: But it was the way you said it. I thought yeah. maybe you had employed someone yes. to help out. Yeah,
0: but I did design it, and so that was fun. And um, because you know, I wanted outdoor space. That I could gather with people and have you know it's a screened-in porch and uh, I bet I bet you've got some of those in Key West.
1: There are screened-in porches (laughs) in Key West. Uh, There are also many houses that do not have screens because we have a very effective mosquito control and the bugs are minimal at their most aggressive.
0: What? Why? How does that happen?
1: Well, uh because they spray they they oh. they, they come over with these uh, these airplanes that uh spray spray I don't God knows what DDT perhaps but uh <laughs> we we haven't Let's lost any, we haven't lost any citizens to that to my knowledge uh, but but the ski, mosquitoes keep uh keep to themselves and we have mosquito control people who come around every uh few weeks knock on the door and ask to see your back law backyard to make sure there's no standing water.
0: It's pretty good. Oh, wow. Pretty good. I imagine that without that insects would be an issue. Would be a I'm problem. I'm sure they there. would. Yes. I'm
1: sure they would.
0: I've noticed Iowa, I think in the summertime in in the evening insect mosquitoes, gnats, all kinds of things that bite and are really seriously a problem. It's very hard to enjoy being outside without dealing with that. But in Austin, I feel like it's a lot less, which is where I go when I'm not here, um, when I'm not in Iowa. I'm in Austin, Texas. And I think it's because I live less than a mile from the largest bat colony, oh, urban, yeah. urban bat colony, and I think they eat all the bugs. Oh, sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. I bet they're fat and
0: happy. <laughs> Well, they keep coming back, that's for sure. So, Carrie, what is it about Key West that draws so many writers? And who are some of the writers who have lived there and who are featured in this in this book?
1: Well, they're, they're, that's two different categories, because <laughs> the writers that drew people to Key West were primarily Ernest Hemingway, of course, Tennessee Williams, Elizabeth Bishop, people like that who are no longer, alas, with us. And this book uh, tapped the existing writers in Key West, it's about about 50, um, who either remembered them or knew them or some of the many other writers who uh, visited the island, including the poet laureate Richard Wilbur and... John Malcolm Brennan, and now we have Phyllis Rose. We have Judy Bloom, who many people uh, grew up on. and it's quite a quite a lively colony. And uh, when when my wife and I first started spending half the year in Key West, uh, afraid that my mind would quickly go to mush, we made a documentary film where we got to know most of these writers. So when the Key West Literary Seminar, on whose board I am most honored to serve, uh, bought Elizabeth, poet Elizabeth Bishop's house in 2019, right before the pandemic, um, and began a million-dollar renovation and had a million-dollar uh, mortgage, I tapped these writers that I'd met doing the film, Um, to donate or write a piece for a collection I naively wanted to put together. (laughs) I say naively because it turned out to be more work than I anticipated. Um, uh, And they all complied. They all said, sure, I'd be happy to help. So um, all the proceeds from uh, the – all the writers' proceeds and authors' proceeds and my proceeds go to support – this uh, beautiful uh, house that Elizabeth Bishop lived in from 1938 to 1946, I believe. Yeah. Pretty close to that.
0: Wow. Why, though, did so many writers come to Key West in the first place?
1: Well, a lot were attracted uh, by the fact that Hemingway kind of put it on the map as yeah. far as literarily. It was also cheap in those days. It's no longer cheap. Um, <laughs> And uh, the word got around that it was it was it was convivial uh, to writers. The weather was good um, and they just uh, it became a kind of magnet. In fact, if there's a theme in both the documentary and the book, it's why has Key West become such a magnet? So I gave you the short answer, but the, the long answer would take uh, Quite a few hours, I think. <laughs>
0: the long answer, read the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very good. Yeah. You said it, not me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's it's a great, it's really intriguing. Every essay, they're very different. Um, they're, it covers a lot of ground, even though it's all about one very, you know, fairly small piece of ground. For anyone who's not familiar with Key West, can you describe where and what it is?
1: Well, it's the uh, southernmost point in the United States, uh, about 150 miles southwest of Miami, a small island with uh, a a year-round population of about 25,000, and a winter population approaching, God knows, a million, I guess, Uh, (laughs) people trying to escape the frigid north, Um, at the risk of uh, blowing my own horn, which I'm uh, uncomfortable doing, I wanted to say that, yes, it's an interesting collection, but unlike most anthologies, it has a kind of narrative arc, which dis- which starts with something I'm going to read later, the discovery of Key West. the It infatu- moves to the infatuation with Key West, um, the enjoyment of Key West, and then a certain disillusionment sets in because Key West after five years of being there, or in some cases, 10 years, is not the Key West that people remembered when they fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is what Tom McGuane, who's a well-known uh, Key West author, no longer living there, describes as the forever cycle. Uh, as he was leaving town, um, experiencing this uh, frustration and disenchantment with an island that he had Loved so dearly, um, he he encountered people coming into town who were just falling in love with it and couldn't believe how wonderful it was. And he so he called that the forever cycle that he <laughs> he says will go on probably forever.
0: Wow. Do do you find that people who maybe have lost um, the enchantment and leave come back?
1: Many do. Some do. And some some um, continue to visit. Even Tom McGuane continues to visit, I think, on an annual basis. Uh, Yes, they they come back. Maybe they maybe they don't spend as quite as much time as they did once, but um, they do come back. Pretty hot in the summer, by the way. Uh, (laughs) So do you stay year round? We do not. We're there from the 1st of December till the end of April, five, five, five months. Sometimes till the end of uh, till the end of May. We we stayed longer and during the pandemic because surprisingly and luckily and fortunately for us. Um, the 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 road the single road leading from miami to key west was closed to all but residents and contractors and others who had business in key west for those first four or five months and the island resumed what it must have been like in the early years in the 40s and 50s it was very quiet there were no tourists there were very few cars it was it was I, i i I hesitate to say this because the <laughs> pandemic caused so much suffering with so many people, but it was uh, it was heavenly in, in the first few months of the pandemic in Key West, wow. so we stayed longer.
0: So where do you live the rest of the year? We live about
1: 95 miles north of New York City in uh, Dutchess County, New York, which uh, we, which runs from the Hudson River to Connecticut, we're very close to the Connecticut uh, border, about seven miles, I guess, but as the crow flies. And uh, it's beautiful. It's it describes itself as the foothills of the Berkshire Mountains. So it's this beautiful rolling uh, countryside with a lot of horses and cows, and it's very rural <laughs> and very different from
0: uh, from Key West. It sounds like. Kind of polar opposites. (laughs) It is polar
1: opposites, but I I often say that I live in my two favorite places in the world, so I I consider myself very lucky.
0: What initially took you to Key West?
1: Well, I grew up uh, in Miami, of all places. My father trained (laughs) racehorses. We go to Miami in the winter and New York in the summer. So I was a snowbird from early, early days. And my wife uh, was not a fan of Florida. And when we went there just on a a President's Weekend four day visit, which we had gotten in the habit of doing on President's Day week, President's Weekend, uh, she said, Oh, this isn't like Florida. I could. I could live here, and she says I immediately grabbed her hand and dragged her to the real estate office. I don't remember it quite that way, but that's, uh, that's, that, that's the family lore, and I'll, I'll stick with it.
0: So Key West is known for being welcoming to eccentrics.
1: It's welcoming to – I would say Key West is very accepting of all sorts of people. In fact, the gay population helped. First of all, I should back up and say Key West has gone through many booms and busts over the years. And when the Navy pulled out in 1977, the place was really hurting, it was derelict. And uh, the, the reputation perhaps fueled in part by the knowledge that Tennessee Williams lived there. Um, The reputation was that they were very, that the town was very accepting to all manner of interesting and eccentric people, including the gay population. And gay people, mostly men, but many gay women, lesbians, uh, began going to key west and investing in these houses and doing them over and really brought the brought the patient back to life and uh, we're very very grateful now uh, gays can go anywhere almost in this country and and find a, uh, acceptance but there's still a, a a significant gay population who bring a lot of uh creativity and joy to the island so we're very we're very happy about uh its acceptance and when my friends and I are usually are are asked about what it is about Key West we either mention the weather or the acceptance of uh of so many different kinds of people and i i would i just put them in reverse order but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that's very, it's very important, and it's a very important aspect. And it's a theme that runs through this, uh, this book that we put together, that I put together. Well, we, because so many contributors, 50-some, I think, wow. um, donated. Or about half of the pieces were written for the book, and about half had been published uh, elsewhere or earlier.
0: Tell me about some of the writers in the book. You mentioned Judy Bloom and her essay about opening an independent bookstore was one of my favorites right judy is for those who aren't familiar with her a, a very prolific writer for young people and um
1: and she has written adult books as well but she's she's loving her bookstore and she's very <laughs> she's very happy that she doesn't have to struggle with blank pages anymore <laughs> So I'll just, I'll just read some of the uh, people, wonderful writers who are represented here. Joy Williams, who is a phenomenal short story writer. Pico Iyer is a, is a great uh, journalist and travel writer. Barbara Ehrenreich, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago. Phil Caputo. Dan Meneker, who also uh, unfortunately died. Tom McGuane, who I mentioned before. Uh, Paul Hendrickson, who teaches uh, writing at the University of Pennsylvania, Um, Thomas Travisano, who wrote the the standard biography of poet Elizabeth Bishop, Um, John Leslie, Phyllis Rose, who is a noted literary critic and uh, nonfiction writer, Alison Lurie, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago also. In fact, we got to Key West. Uh, um, well, we bought our first house there in, uh, in 1999, or the last millennium, as I sometimes say. <laughs> um, but we didn't. I didn't retire until 2011, and uh, the some of the more prominent writers were already uh, beginning to uh, face uh, older age. And um, many of the many of those that I tapped to do this book died during the preparation of it, including Alison Lurie, who was wonderful. Um, James Merrill is profiled in the book, so there's a poem by by him. Uh, Similarly, John Malcolm Brennan and Beatty is in the book. Many know her from her wonderful uh, short stories in. in The New Yorker, Hal Crowther, Glenn Frankel, uh, Michael Mushaw, uh, Bill Wright, whose idea of whose idea this book was, not quite in its present form. He wanted to write the entire book, a series of sketches similar to John Hersey's uh, wonderful book on Key West called Key West Tales, which is, describes the previous uh, generation. So we have a lot of wonderful writers and uh I I'm I'm very uh, pleased that so many were so generous with their time and their work.
0: Okay, so I have to ask because all these people seem very accomplished, very well published. There must be writers there who live in Key West or have it or their you know association with Key West that you did not ask to Contribute? Did you get any, any uh, hurt yeah, feelings from I, that? There <laughs>
1: were a few I didn't ask, and I'm sure that I won't be invited to any of their uh, dinner parties. Uh, but uh, I did ask the, those who uh, I knew personally for the most part and those who uh, were best known to the world at large, um, as well as a few who are not as well known that are represented in the book because uh, they wrote so nicely for me we did we did uh, get a few pieces that uh, that uh, we did not run for a variety of reasons but uh, most of the most of the things that I commissioned are in the book how do how do you
0: handle that if if you decide not to include something I mean it's a small town in a way you know it's a when everyone's there it's not so small but you know it sounds like pretty a lot of the writers know each other
1: well they do they do and uh i i tried to handle it as tactfully and uh, delicately <laughs> and uh, uh uh with with the greatest uh thanks that i could uh, squeeze into a single email but uh yes everyone's uh, disappointed when something they write uh, is not accepted and that's happened to me a few times in my career so i I know what it's like and i also know that uh you get you get past it and you blame you blame the editors for for not appreciating your work and that's that's fine if they want to blame me that's fine too
0: yeah but But they're not many
1: they're not we did have to uh we there at one point uh, there was a whole section. It's, it's now in two sections. The book is now in two sections, uh, one called Island Fever and the other a series of profiles of, of the Hemingways and Tennessee Williams and, and people of that stature who are associated with Key West who are no longer uh, alive. Uh, but there was a third section of short stories oh. that uh, the publisher uh, felt was going to make the book uh, too long and could be done away with. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we'll get a, uh, a second book, a second book. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice. That would be nice. Yeah. Of
1: course, this one has to do extremely well first. So I'm counting on you to make that.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll do what we can. You're You're listening to writers voices and our guest today is Carrie Winfrey author or editor of the anthology Key West Sketches, Writers at Mile Zero. Now, do you have an essay in this book?
1: Well, I have an introduction. Uh, I I, I have an introduction. Um, And I, having been a magazine editor for many years, uh, 20, I guess, um, my hand is uh, my hand is involved in most of the pieces in the book I either did some cutting or some rearranging and did some suggesting uh, so I feel well I feel well represented <laughs> but I as a writer myself and, uh, and once upon a time um, and an okay one but not a great one I discovered that editing was uh, was not only easier, but paid better. So I've been an editor. I've been an editor now, more of an editor than a writer for uh, a quarter of a century, I guess, something like that.
0: I actually find editing to be, um, in a way, more fun.
1: It is more fun. It is more fun. And if if the person that you're editing appreciates what you've done, it can be very satisfying, even if even if it's uh, more anonymous than than uh, than writing.
0: You know, I, I've never officially worked as an editor, but I have um, done a lot in my business career, of course, editing um, my employees' copy for various things and sure. newsletters and so forth. But also, my, my one claim to kind of fame is I had a friend who had a book contract contract um, She's an academic writer with Oxford Press, and I edited Mm -hmm. a chapter in her book for her. And she really did appreciate it, you know, because I was able to take what she was. I was able to make it more accessible because I did not know that much about the subject. So, yeah. So that was fun.
1: It was fun. Yeah. It it reminds me, I used to uh, produce a television documentary series, and we did a documentary on – Las Vegas, and George Will was one of the uh, was the host of the of the series, or one of the host of there were four hosts of the series. Um, and uh, when he got to Las Vegas, um, he had two tickets to uh, see Elvis Presley in his declining years, vastly overweight, but still put on a terrific uh, show. And uh, George wrote a column about it, and he asked me to read it over the next morning over breakfast. And uh, I made a few suggestions, and from then on, I was hooked uh, to, edit, <laughs> <laughs> to editing. So
0: that's how you got started. Huh? That's how I got started, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like yeah, that.
1: I liked it, too. Yeah.
0: So um, if I were to ask you if you had a favorite essay in this book, would you tell me you cannot possibly choose
1: it's, it's like asking if I have a favorite child yep, yep. Do, or grandchild is more to the point these days, uh, and I do not.
0: I, I assumed as much. But if um, if you were going to recommend a, one essay for someone to read that might hook them into wanting to read the whole book.
1: Well, I mentioned before that the first half of the book, at least, it has this narrative arc about the discovery of Key West, the participation in Key West, the growing love of Key West and the disillusionment and then the sometimes resurgence of uh, that uh love. I would say start with the first essay in the book which I would be uh, thrilled and delighted to read for you. Uh it's it's uh by my my very good friend Frank DeFord, who was one of the foremost sports writers of his day, uh, writing for Sports Illustrated for 35 or 40 years. He also did television, and he had a, uh, he had a very popular feature, a weekly feature on NPR, uh, where he did commentary on the events of the week or what was going on in his life. And the first essay in Key West Sketches is his uh, recounting his discovery of Key West, and uh, if you'd like, I could read it Sure, that let's
0: you. let's do that.
1: Okay, it's called Vroom Vroom Vroom, the sound that motorcycles make, but uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll understand why. By Frank DeFord, um, and this was uh, this was on NPR maybe uh, ten or fifteen years ago. It's very possible. To dismiss Key West, as the British say, as just too much by half. I mean, you arrive at the airport and putting on his glasses <laughs> and it says, welcome to the Conch Republic. And everybody is quick to let you know that Key West really isn't Florida, which is to say it's too good for Florida or for that matter, too good for any mere state of the union. The taxis are pink the houses are cutesy-poo, and the residents act like only Key West in all the world as a sunset. (laughs) What a nerve. Yet, for all this snobbery, the main drag, Duval Street, may be the tackiest thoroughfare in all of tourist land. How can any place that is so smug explain away a t-shirt economy and schlocky saloons that look like Disney would have designed them if only Disney designed saloons. And yet, the day I arrived about 15 years ago to do a story for National Geographic magazine, I wasn't moseying around Key West for more than a couple of hours before I found a payphone and called my wife and said, you're going to love this place. <laughs> as contradictory as that sounds, I suppose that's the point. It is the very contradictions of Key West that make it unique. I mean, this is a subtropical resort by the sea, which had to truck in sand to build a beach. You have to go out of town to find a golf course. No golf course in Florida. You might as well have a resort where chickens and deformed cats wander around like they own the place. Oh, yeah, that's Key West, too. Not only that, but gay people basically saved the town when it was in economic distress. In a country that has become so homogenized, so franchisable, so one-size-fits-all, Key West, all right. The conch-by-God Republic (laughs) is not only unique, but proud to be different. And I like that. I'm romantic enough to believe that you can't order up ambiance that the current edition of Key West is founded on its bizarre layers of history. It's been a place of extremes, gone through boom and bust since it was opened for business as a cheeky outpost that got rich on the misfortunes of others, or specifically the ships that would conveniently crash onto the nearby reefs. It wasn't just fish that the natives hauled in. At other times, cigars, booze, and pot have fueled the local economy. So Key West has always been a place where freebooters and singles and oddballs were welcome. The sense of that is in the air. But Key West is naughty more than dangerous and whimsical more than cynical. So it was back all those years ago that a few weeks later, when I returned to Key West, as I promised my wife, this time I brought her along with me. From our home in Connecticut. Our first night in town together, there was a Christmas parade down Duval Street. And in the middle, right after your all-American high school marching band, here comes a phalanx of motorcycles, all going vroom, 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 (laughs) driven by 40 fat gay Santa Clauses. I turned to my wife. I told you you'd love this place. She was enthralled. Vroom, vroom, vroom. We've been back every year
0: since. (laughs) And that's Carrie Winfrey reading from Key West Sketches Writers at Mile Zero. Why is it called Mile Zero?
1: Well, because it's the end of uh, Route 1 that starts in Maine and goes all the way to Key West, and there are There are sign indicators all, I don't know, 16, 1750 miles of it that are mile markers, and (laughs) zero is right there in Key West. And there's a sign that says mile marker zero, and for some reason that I've never quite understood, almost every time I go by, there are tourists from Japan photographing each other in front of it. There must be some... Japanese guidebook that says when you go to the United States, you've got to go to mile marker zero in Kiwi. It's just a, it's just an ordinary traffic sign. but they it's, the Japanese tourists seem to gravitate toward it.
0: Well, I can understand that. I can understand yes. that. I mean i I wanted you know, if I go to a new state that I've never been to before, I kind of want to take my picture in front of the welcome to whatever state sign. of or, course. yeah, of yeah. course,
1: but you're not Japanese. no
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not. Um, the road i've I've been to Key West once, and it's a little s- scary. Getting some of those there. bridges, yeah, some yeah. of those bridges. Driving and,
1: down from Miami.
0: And what happens when a hurricane's coming? Does everybody leave?
1: Well, it depends on the hurricane and whether it's going to hit or not, and the size of the hurricane, okay. and whether the city says everybody out. First, the first to be ordered out are the tourists. That's usually followed by the residents if it's a bad hurricane. And yes, that road could get. Quite congested, up, yeah. Congested. So the old timers who have done this before, well, they either stay there against the uh, the orders of the police uh, or the mayor, or they leave at two in the morning and uh, drive the two hours on a on a road that's uh, where the cars are moving along at a good pace. But yes, it's a it's it's a problem.
0: When is hurricane season?
1: Well, it starts uh, the 1st of June, and it ends um, the end of October. So it's June to October. So October.
0: that's when you're not there.
1: It's when I'm not there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, also, it's also extremely and uncomfortably hot in particularly July and August, but also June and September can be very hot. And what's different about the heat in Key West, uh, which – A couple of summer months that we have stayed there or tried it out, it gets not that much harder than where I am in New York. It might get up to 94 or 95 degrees day after day, but then it cools off at night to only 87, so you don't get any relief. When When it's in the 90s here, the few days of the summer that it is, it cools off into the low 70s or high 60s. So, so you don't need air conditioning most of the time, and that's the difference. It's, it's, uh, it, it can be brutal uh, in the summer.
0: Not as brutal as Austin was this summer, I think.
1: Well, I'm sure there, there's <laughs> there's brutality everywhere. We were, oh, in, uh, man. <laughs> we were in London a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the last two days we were there, it was in the mid, it was in the nineties, and the Londoners are not used to this, no. and London does not have much air conditioning, so it was uh, it was pretty brutal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It was so
1: brutal at the very. Uh, exclusive and uh, traditional Athenaeum Club, of which uh, King Charles is a member, uh, suspended the requirement for ties and coats for two days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it's really hot when that happens. Yeah, yeah. When the Athenaeum
1: lets lets its guard down. You know it's hot.
0: It is interesting how. Fortunately,
1: didn't, King Charles didn't show up in shirt sleeves, <laughs> so it was all right.
0: It, it's interesting how different perspectives can be because I remember years ago back in the last millennium um, I was in Hawaii I was on Oahu and it was in you know the people the native people there thought we were in the middle of a heat wave which it was for them but it was you know low 90s with the sea breeze now in Iowa in the summer it doesn't this summer we actually had a lovely summer but you almost always get some days that are triple digits with 80% humidity and no breeze at all it's like miserable miserable
1: it sounds miserable yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: but our, it's only our, a few days so we can we we tough it out and then we, it gets better but
1: our weather has been strange this summer too because july and august are almost always dry uh, this summer we had rain like we've never seen before and things are extremely green uh, this time of year, unusually, usually they're dry and de- they're desiccated and brown, but uh, it's, it's uh, so, while while so much of the rest of the country and the world is suffering from, uh, from climate change. Uh, we've been, we've been enjoying uh, extra amounts of rain.
0: Yeah. I always joke that, um, the Midwest, the Upper Midwest, is going to be the winner from climate change because we'll have uh, eventually have beaches.
1: <laughs> and eventually, Key West will be underwater. Yeah, so now I,
0: that is that is a problem. Yeah.
1: I have to I have to uh, have a few disparaging remarks thrown in about Key West like that because the residents some of the residents will not be happy that this book will bring more people to Key West. Uh. We're we're full. So, uh, <laughs> so, come down and enjoy it for a few days, but uh, please no more no more uh, buying here. The 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 whole place is going to be underwater in a few years.
0: What? Is it that is it that soon? I mean,
1: it's not that soon, but, but maybe yeah. by the end of the century.
0: Wow! I mean, it's all the waves are already lapping at high
1: tides, and when there's storms, the 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 waves are all, the town is still is already flooding. Um, not terribly, but it's it's definitely on its way. And wow. you know, Miami Miami Beach has has had a lot of flooding from the water coming up through the limestone, uh, the ocean coming up through the limestone. They've got terrible problems. So it's definitely happening. Um, fortunately, I'm old enough that I probably won't uh, have to move before I move on.
0: <laughs> well, maybe eventually it'll be it'll look like Venice. <laughs> maybe.
1: Maybe that would be nice.
0: Yeah. You're listening to Writers Voices, and our guest today is Carrie Winfrey, the editor of Key West Sketches. Writers at Mile Zero. So let's talk a little bit more about your process of putting this book together. How long did did it you take to do this?
1: Well, thank you. It took. Uh, it all depends because probably the bulk of the work, the assigning, the, the uh, commissioning, the the begging. Uh, Probably most of that was done in the first year. As I mentioned before, I started it right about the time the pandemic started in late 2020. Um, But uh, there was a very intense process of editing with my publisher, Blair Publishing in Durham, North Carolina, who were terrific, uh, but uh, not, but, but, and very conscientious. And they have a, They have a process that they follow, a step-by-step process. Uh, That took most of the third year. The second year was spent uh, with an agent who, after two years of the pandemic, decided to hang up her business. So I kind of lost a year uh, with my first agent and uh, fortunately got a second agent right away. Um, so all in all, it was uh, three years. And there were, because it was an anthology uh, and some of the pieces, about half of them, as I mentioned, were published before. There was a lot of uh, getting permissions and paying re- reproduction fees. And uh, there are a lot of photographs in this book. There's, there's probably 60 or 70 photographs in this book, which is why we, printed in South Korea where they do not charge for additional photographs anywhere near what they charge in the United States. But each photograph, except the 50 or so that I took, uh, we had to get permissions for and we had to negotiate uh, costs for. So the, all of the, all of that nitty-gritty that one doesn't really think about when you're doing a book or writing a book Um is uh, very, turns out to be very time consuming. So it was a three year process by the time it was, by the time it was done. And, uh, the, my immediate um, emotion when I received, uh, the copies of the book, I guess six weeks ago, a month ago, something like that was not, Oh, how wonderful, but enormous relief.
0: That it actually, <laughs> it
1: had actually been published. And, uh, and uh, so far, uh, the folks seem to like it. So I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to uh, enjoy that aspect of it. Well, well. I,
0: I certainly enjoyed reading it. The um, you know, I, like I said, I've been to Key West once and it, it kind of re-enlivened the memories of that for me. I think it was 2007, maybe when I was there. And um, I found it very charming. and the, you mentioned that about half of the essays had been published before. Did you have, do any editing on those, or did you republish yeah, them as is? Yeah, I ah. did. I some
1: editing on, on those. Of course, I, I, everything I did, I ran back to the author, right. ran by the author for their approval. But I did do some editing, particularly some cutting. Some some went on uh, longer than we really had room for, and I wanted to keep everything Reasonably short, um, so that it would be lively, and uh, and uh, so yes, there was some editing on those, but uh, no, nothing that uh, nothing that anyone had too much of a problem with. A couple of a couple of authors asked for uh, some some changes back to what they had originally written, but that that comes with the uh, territory. That happened at the magazine also.
0: One thing I I enjoyed learning about the cigar shops. Do you want to tell me a little bit, talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, the most most salient cigar shop in the book is when the poet Elizabeth Bishop was walking by one in uh, 1938 or 39, and she saw this wonderful, if primitive, painting in a cigar shop window she inquired about it and she went in and purchased it for I think it was $2 and it was by a now much revered and much collected and very valuable uh, uh, very high priced of his paintings named Gregorio Valdez and the painting that she bought, the first Valdez that she ever saw, she commissioned a couple of others uh, of her house, the very house that uh, the Key West L- Literary Seminar, seminar bought. Uh, she commissioned from Valdez, and they're wonderful. But this first painting is of a a is of a, a, a single person, I think, with a child, carrying a child through a uh, long line of uh, royal palm trees, and that painting uh, was acquired by a, a, a Elizabeth Bishop scholar by the name of Elizabeth uh, Alice Quinn, who has donated it uh, to the literary seminar and will hang in the Bishop House, which uh, the renovation of which is near completion, and I believe will be open. It will become the headquarters of the literary seminar and uh, will be and they'll and the seminar offices will be moving there um, sometime this fall so that's uh, that's very exciting. Um, so that's that's the cigar shop of particular note I think
0: Also um, the cigar factories.
1: Well, yes, the cigar factories are, again, part of the boom and bust. After the wreckers, uh, uh, after lighthouses were built and the wreckers could no no longer sustain the booming economy, at one time it was the highest per capita income in the United States. This is very early on in the late 1800s. After the wrecking business uh, collapsed – uh, they took to uh, harvesting turtles, sea turtles, and by wrecking the,
0: business, it means like scavenging shipwrecks.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe intentionally <shipwreck>.
0: wrecking ships. <laughs> well, the, the reefs
1: uh, uh, obviated any requirement to. Uh, okay. <laughs> they did. They did the work for uh, them, but I, I imagine there must have been some resistance from the wreckers to the. Uh, to the building of the, uh, of the lighthouse that uh, <laughs> served for uh, a century or so. Um, but there was, then, then came the, the turtle harvesting and then came uh, cigar uh, factories, uh, particularly uh, after uh, Cuba, after we imposed restrictions on the importation of cigars from Cuba, many, many Cuban cigar makers moved to Key West and uh that is uh, that that is uh, described in the book as well. Um, and there, the cigar makers moved to Tampa, I don't know, twenty or thirty years ago. You know, uh, Billy Collins was our poet laureate and' is a very popular poet who visits Key West every year. He has a wonderful poem in in the book about uh uh a re- the reader i i don't know if all of your listeners will know that cigar factories used to employ readers to read books and poets uh poems and um newspapers and magazines to the cigar rollers to uh to reduce the the uh uh Boredom. dreadful monotony <laughs> of rolling cigars and uh it was quite a uh it was quite a uh interesting uh, occupational addition um so uh billy collins poem captures captures that let me see what it's called uh i can just check The book here. uh,
0: Poetry Workshop Held in a Former former Cigar cigar Factory factory in Key West. West. Why don't you read that for us? It's short. Okay. Happy to. Yeah.
1: Much rather read than talk. (laughs) No, that's not true. But uh, one always wants to say the right things.
0: Well, one is fairly good at that.
1: Billy Collins is (laughs) fairly good at what he does. I'll tell you that. Uh, let's see here where it is. Oh, I should have. Oh, here it is. A Poetry workshop held in a former cigar factory in Key West by Billy Collins with a nice photograph of an actual reader. Uh, and the caption of which reads, until the 1930s, readers known as lectors would read newspapers and novels aloud to cigar workers, cigar rollers, to alleviate the work's monotony. Well, I got it almost right. After our final class, when we disbanded, as the cigar rollers here had disbanded decades ago, getting up from their benches for the last time as the man who read to them during their shift closed his books without marking the page where he left off, I complimented myself on my restraint for never in that sunny white building did I draw an analogy between cigar making and poetry. Not even after I had studied the, the, the display case containing the bladed Chavetta, the ring gouge, and the hand guillotine with its measuring rule, did I suggest that the cigar might be a model for the poem. Nor did I ever cite the exemplary industry of those anonymous rollers and cutters the best producing 300 cigars in a day compared to three flawless poems in a lifetime, if you're lucky, who worked the broad leaves of tobacco into cylinders ready to be held lightly in the hand. Not once did I imply that an intuition tightly rolled into a perfectly shaped handmade thing might encourage a reader to remove the brightly colored encircling band slip it over her finger, and take the poet as her spouse in a sudden puff of smoke. No, I kept all of that to myself until now. (laughs) Wonderful. Love it. Thank you, Billy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. Is this your first book project? No,
1: I... No, I wrote... I wrote, I'm i embarrassed to say that I wrote a memoir um, <laughs> when I was 25, I think, which if you could see me now, you would realize was a long time ago, more than half a century. It was called Starts and Finishes, and it was about growing up partly around the racetrack. Um, and my friend, my Key West friend, John Leslie, who is a wonderful Plotmeister, a wonderful plotter, and I wrote a, a uh, political thriller, a sort of what-if novel, um, right before Hillary Clinton was planning to win the election, because it was about a, the first woman elected president of the United States who, not Hillary Clinton, but this fictional character, Uh, had an aneurysm a few days before her inauguration and had to step aside while her vice president, who had a dark secret in his past, uh, wrestled with the idea of stepping up to the presidency and uh, fearing, as he did, uh, that his dark secret would come to light. Um, I won't plug it, but I will tell you the title. It was called Hail to the Chief, and it's still available on on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: unfortunately, you're- unfortunately,
1: unfortunately, our agent uh, died shortly after she took took on the job of selling it. So we wound up self-publishing it. But uh, thanks to John, who. Would would always tell me what happened next because I was not very good at figuring that out. Um, we did get it. We did get it published. I mean, we published it ourselves. What am I saying?
0: <laughs> you mentioned that with this book, your agent retired kind of midstream. And well, an agent did. An agent, who- an agent. And how were you able to? find another agent quickly? Is it because of your long history as in the you know, journalism? It had nothing
1: and to do with me. My good wow. friend, Meg Cabot, who, who wrote The Princess Diaries and about 5,000 other books. She's the most <laughs> prolific person I've ever met in my life uh, and is on the S- seminar board with me and is a wonderful person. And
0: is a contributor uh, to this.
1: And as a contributor to yes. this, Yes. Uh, she took an anecdote that she talked about in the document into a, a wonderful little vignette, um, put me in touch with her agent and said nice things about me and the project to her agent, Laura Langley, who represented the book. So that was great.
0: So how... Close knit is the writing community in Key West.
1: Well, I think it's very close knit. Almost everyone knows everyone, all the writers, and uh, they. Sometimes we call them the usual suspects. Show up at uh, at various uh, libations and events and dinner parties. No, it's a very tight knit community, and it is a very non-hierarchical community. It doesn't matter if you're a best-selling author or a first-time writer. You are encouraged and accepted and welcomed uh, in a way that those writers who have a lot more experience with publishing than I do say is unique to Key West and it's part of that acceptance I think that we were talking about earlier. So it's uh, it's a very close community. All right. Now and, uh, now
0: you're gonna want now you're gonna make a lot of writers want to move to Key West. And I know uh, you are trying to avoid that.
1: We could <laughs> use a lot of writers because um, the young writers, particularly young writers, they can't afford it anymore. Mm. It's it's what's happened is uh, the Nantucketizing of Key West, the things have gotten Incredibly uh, expensive, particularly hotel rooms and uh, housing. And uh, people who work in Key West who don't make that much money have to drive <clears throat> up the Keys uh, many, many miles, long commutes, uh, because housing uh, for for the working uh, people in Key West. Uh, the the house cleaners, the bartenders, the waiters, the cooks, um, they can't afford to live there unless they happen to buy, you know, something twenty years ago and have been paying it off ever since. It's it's a it's a real problem. It's not a unique no. it's hardly unique to Key West. But right. it's come to Key West.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's uh it's one of the problems along with the rising seas that uh, that we're dealing with or they're dealing with.
0: Okay. One last question about Key West. Are there a lot of cats?
1: There are a lot of cats. (laughs) Not as many as there are feral chickens. Chickens are (laughs) all over the place and uh, tolerated, particularly if they don't roost in your backyard. Because the myth that they only crow at dawn is is nothing but a myth. (laughs) They crow all night long. And it can be awful if they've decided that your backyard is where they want to live and roost. Um, but there are also a lot of cats, and uh, they pretty much, the, what most, most of the cats that one sees at least, I don't know how many are behind closed doors, but we see a lot of cats living or, apparent or spending most of their time on the street or sidewalks in Old Town, which is the older part of uh, Key West. So there are a lot of cats, yes. Wow.
0: Well, Carrie, we're out of time, and I want to uh, thank you for well, being with quickly. us today. Well, that <laughs> Thanks to you. And we always close with the quote, and of course I had to do a Hemingway quote, but it's also a shout-out to Jimmy Buffett.
1: Very good. He
0: recently passed away. Yes. Apparently, Ernest said, I want to get to Key West and get away from it all.
1: Very yeah. good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And a, and, a, and a toast to Jimmy Buffett, who we just lost, and yeah. who was very important in helping to put Key West on the map.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: embodied this, much of the spirit of Key West, I must say. Mm. He will be sorely missed.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.
1: And thank you.